Hi, and welcome to episode 9 of Cavalier Cast The Civil War in Words. This podcast looks at everything and anything to do with the Civil War. In previous episodes, we've covered battles and sieges and their anniversaries. We've examined the club men who were on the whole neutrals and wanted to bring an end to the war. We've looked at the personalities and families of King Charles and Oliver Cromwell, and also interviewed leading Civil War museums, such as the Cromwell Museum and the National Civil War Centre. Today, I'm lucky enough to speak to Keith Dowen, Deputy Curator of the Royal Armouries. You'll hear Keith tell us more about the personal items in the collection, such as an iconic armour used by both sides in propaganda, We'll find out more about Gustavus Adolphus's buff coat and why it transferred hands after World War I, and a prop that the armouries acquired, which was used in the 1970 film Cromwell, starring Richard Harris and Sir Alec Guinness. So without further ado, let's hear from Keith. You've been with the Royal Armouries um, as an assistant curator since 2014. Um, yes. One of your main interests um, is the War of the Three Kingdoms. Um, so if I can ask just when or how did your interest in the period start? Um, I think it was at primary school when I read uh, The Children of the New Forest. Um, and that really got me into the period. Um, and then when I moved to secondary school, we did a project in year eight on the civil wars. And we actually found out that... Um, a skirmish had taken place on the site of um, the school and that occasionally a musket ball would be turned up on the playing field. Uh, and as I grew up in Nottingham, I mean, Nottingham is sort of infused with Civil War history, really. So it was never very far away. And I've really just been interested ever since. I think it's, you know, such a fundamental part of our history that uh, deserves to be widely known and it's it's so interesting i mean anywhere that you go in the country you know you see pub signs called the royal oak for example um yeah it's it's certainly left its mark um even to the modern day you've carried out extensive research um around many things, for example, buff courts and the manufacture, supply and design of 17th century armour. Um, what's the most unusual design that you've encountered? Uh, probably the most unusual would be a type of helmet known as a Savoyard or Death's Head helmet. Um, these were made primarily for siege use um, and they often feature faceplates with quite um, otherworldly designs, you know, either in the form of uh, a death's head or they can even look almost alien or sci-fi in a way. And you wouldn't associate uh, that design with the 17th century. Uh, they come in endless variety of forms um, from the extremely crude to others of huge complexity and sophistication. And I think... You know, they certainly would have made an impact on the battlefield if you came across, say, a, an armoured cuirassier wearing one of them. Are any of those that you've come across um, English in origin? 
Uh, no, the majority seem to be continental, either Italian or German. There are a few French ones. Uh, that doesn't mean that they weren't used during the civil wars, of course, because yeah. uh, both sides were importing equipment from the continent. And, and what past museum project have you been involved in regarding the Civil War 17th century? Uh, well, probably the biggest is actually the uh, establishment of the new National Civil War Centre in Newark. So one of my first jobs when I got to the armories was to um, go through all the objects, prepare the loans. I was involved in packing the objects, taking them down to um, Newark and installing them there. And uh, I still work very closely with Kevin and Glynn. And because the Royal Armouries has such a large collection of Civil War items, we get requests from all over the place. So a couple of years ago, I was involved um, in a loan to uh, Newbury. Um, we've also been involved with the new displays, uh, which are due to open in a few years' time, I think, at Nottingham Castle. But certainly the Civil War Centre was the um, the biggest uh, project that I've been involved with. And for that, we sent down buff coats, muskets, swords, all sorts of items. Right, excellent. Yeah, I think um, Francis Hacker's buff coat was one of those, wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Yeah, And, and Newbury as well. So is, is that a, a museum at Newbury? Yes, so it's um, the local museum in Newbury. Um, we lent them uh, items from the Littlecote House collection because Littlecote House in Wiltshire is not too far away from Newbury. Mm. <clears throat> and what we found that a lot of people who live in that area remember when the collection used to be at Littlecote. So it was a chance for us to sort of um, re-establish that Littlecote connection. Yeah, excellent. And it's going to prove to be quite exciting, the new display at Nottingham Castle, from, from what I hear about it. Um, yes, it will looking, be. Looking forward to that. Um, you mentioned Little Court House there, so the Royal Armouries has got over 8,500 items um, on display. Um, but that one special collection is the Little Court House, the most important surviving Civil War armoury. Who did that belong to? And do you know which army it did supply in the Civil War or equip? Uh, well, the history of the collection is quite complex, particularly since um, pieces were subsequently added in the 19th and 20th centuries. But the core of the armoury seems to have been assembled by Alexander Popham around, 50, around 1650, uh, when he held the position of a colonel of horse and foot in the Somerset militia. Now, Popham was MP for Bath, and he had initially sided with Parliament, but he backed the restoration of the monarchy in 1660. Um, we can't say for definite, but it's likely that uh, much of the equipment was actually sourced from surplus supplies that were destined for the Scottish and Irish campaigns. Um, so it was really just to uh, equip the local militia. Right, I see. Uh, and what is included in the collection? Um, huge variety. There are over 400 pieces. Um, it includes infantry and cavalry armour mainly. Um, a really important collection of firearms. There are edged weapons, leather accessories, and it's probably best known for its superb group of uh, 37 buff leather coats. And how close was it been to, to getting sold off piecemeal at auction? 
Um, well, it was it was very close actually. Um, Littlecote was acquired in the early 20th century by Sir Ernest Seaton Wills, uh, and it was sold in 1985 to Peter de Savary. Now, the previous year, um, a team from the Tower Armouries, uh, including Graham Rymer and David Blackwall, actually visited Littlecote and catalogued the firearms collection as, as a research project, really. But uh, the following year, uh, Peter de Savary decided to sell the collections of the house at Sotheby. So the Sotheby, so um, the Royal Armouries uh, research project some, suddenly acquired some urgency. Um, I mean, the catalogues of the collection were actually printed and ready to go. So uh, in no time at all, the armories needed to raise £580,000 to save the collection for the nation. Um, and part of the fundraising effort, and probably the most famous part, was a sponsored march in armour from Littlecote to London. That's original armour from Littlecote House. Wow. Um, and there were photo and publicity stops at Donington Castle, Newbury, Reading, Windsor. Uh, and then at Horse Guards Parade, uh, there was a big combined effort from the Royal Armouries and various English Civil War reenactment societies. And they presented a petition to the Minister of State at the time. Fortunately, the petition was successful and the whole collection was saved for the nation in 1986. Um, it was conserved, it was sent back to uh, Littlecote, but um, when Littlecote was sold to Warner Holidays in 1996, um, the Royal Armouries removed the collection to the tower and then subsequently it's um, now at Leeds. And if you visit the armouries in Leeds, you'll see a reconstruction of part of the wall from the Great Hall as it appears at Littlecote with buff coats and stands of arms and uh, armour on display. So it was a, it was a close run thing. Yeah, yeah and that, that walk um, with the armour on, that sounds amazing, research for a book or something. Unfortunately, <laughs> we're not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, quite a special uh, opportunity there. And in your opinion, uh, what do you think has been learned from studying the collection? Oh, a huge amount. I mean, it's being a largely homogenous collection from the 17th century rather than one which has been assembled over um, many years. Um, we can find out a lot about the manufacturing methods of armour and equipment. We've learnt about the identity of individual makers because a lot of the armour certainly is stamped with London makers' marks. Um, and apart from the buff coats, which has given us a huge amount of information on the way they were constructed, um, probably the most important um, group of items from Littlecote is the uh, 17th century firearms. And really, they are the single most important group of 17th century firearms anywhere in the country. And that led to a much improved understanding of the different types of flintlock mechanisms in use at the time. Um, but although the Royal Armouries has been 
involved in researching the collection since the 1980s, there's undoubtedly a lot more to learn. And, you know, researchers will be busy for many more years to come. So we talked about Little Court there, but you've also got an impressive number of of personal items at Leeds as well, haven't you? So, for example, um, King Charles I's full gilt armour. Could you tell us about its origin and design? Well, although it's actually associated with Charles I, it was probably made for his elder brother, Henry, who Henry Prince of Wales, who um, died as a young man. Um, and its commission may have been influenced by a gilded armour worn by one of Henry's military heroes, who was the uh, Dutch stadtholder, Prince Maurice of Nassau. Uh, he wore a, a gilt armour and he's depicted in numerous portraits commemorating his victory over the Spanish at Newport in 1600. And it's likely that the armour was uh, commissioned by Sir Edward Cecil, who was a former cavalry commander in the Netherlands and a co- close friend of Henry uh, to gain his favour. Unfortunately, uh, the prince died when, uh, or prior to uh, it actually being delivered in 1613. Um, and so since then, it's become associated with Charles I. Now, there are some stories that um, Charles wore this gilded armour at Naseby in 1645. But unfortunately, although it's a nice story, it's not actually true because we know that Parliament had already um, transferred the gilt armour from uh, Greenwich Palace to the Tower of London in 1644. Um, At the restoration of the monarchy in 1660, it was exhibited as the armour of Charles I. Now, that's not to say that Charles didn't wear armour on the battlefield. Indeed, if you look through the transcripts of his trial, He is accused of wearing armour on a number of occasions. And I say accused because the for the judges, their opinion was, well, if Charles was a great lover of his people, why would he need armour? You know, uh, (laughs) clearly he thought some of his people were a threat. And that sort of flew in the face of everything that Charles was saying, that he hated bloodshed, etc. So as far as we know, that gilt armour was not worn during the civil wars, but um, it seems to have transferred ownership from Henry to Charles. Almost when when Henry died, um, he's had to step into his shoes and his armour <laughs> in a way. Yeah. But yeah, in, in terms of that threat, I mean, at the Battle of Edgehill, the parliamentary artillery opened fire at the king. Yeah, um, so yeah. I know. <laughs> I don't doubt that he would go in there with some sort of protection, especially after that. Precisely. Okay. And and also armor that uh, you have is is some that's reputed to have belonged to Geoffrey Hudson. Um, so could you tell us a little more about that and who Geoffrey was? Uh, well, Geoffrey Hudson was Queen Henrietta Maria's court dwarf. Um, who had been presented to her as a gift by the Duke and Duchess of Buckingham in about 1629, I think. Uh, Now, it was very fashionable in European courts of the period to have both uh, dwarves and giants. Uh, We know there was also a giant uh, in Henrietta Maria's court as well. Um, But Geoffrey Hudson was particularly commented upon because he was um, perfectly proportioned, although 
in about 1630, he only stood 18 inches high. Um, now, we have a small armour on display at the Tower of London, which by tradition is said to have belonged to Hudson. Um, the problem is it seems to have been associated with a number of different individuals over the years. So one early tradition was that it belonged to Richard, Duke of York, one of the princes in the tower. Now, that's evidently wrong because it's a 17th century armour. Um, it's also been suggested that it might have belonged to Charles I when he was a boy. Um, it's possible that it belonged to Hudson at some point. Um, we know that uh, he, he saw... Um, <clears throat> Well, he was commissioned a captain of horse during the Civil War, but it's not actually known if he saw combat. Now, it's unlikely he would have worn that armour then. Um, I think really, though, probably the evidence that goes against it being Geoffrey Hudson's is the height of the armour, and that is the armour stands over three foot tall. Now, as I said, Geoffrey was only about 18 inches tall in 1630, and he grew later in life, but that wasn't till he was about 30 years old, um, which would have been in about 1649. And this armour certainly dates to before 1630. So I think it's a nice tradition. And we do have a, a giant, a so-called giant's armour on display. So it's been associated with him for a long time. But unfortunately, we can't prove that it was ever worn by him. I suppose very similar there. There's also a, a sword that has Cromwell associated with it, isn't it? So, and yes. that, that's a mortuary sword. Yes, that's right. Can you tell us a little bit about the mortuary sword it, itself? Um, well, the name mortuary sword really comes about in the 19th century. It wasn't a term used uh, during the civil wars. Um, and, one of the theories, and really probably the most likely theory uh, for its name, is that many of these swords feature hilts with what look like um, profiles of Charles I, you know, the, the Van Dyke moustache and beard. Um, and it used to be thought that these swords were made after his execution in 1649 as a way of commemorating him. And so they got the name Mortuary Sword. Um, but we actually know that this style of sword was used from the at least the 1630s onwards. So in other words, predating uh, Charles's execution. And apart from a few examples, um, the faces that appear on them are really just generic and they don't represent um, Charles at all. OK, right. Um, and another personal item is John Gell's buff coat. Um, so for anyone unfamiliar, could you just explain what a buff coat is made of and how effective they were at protection from blades? Um, well, a buff coat is basically a marine oil tanned leather garment, uh, typically, but not always, with thigh to knee length skirts, which was used um, from the early 17th century in place of or in conjunction with plate armour. Um, by the sort of 1630s, really, a lot of plate armour was falling out of use, particularly amongst the cavalry. Um, but 
obviously you still need some form of protection. And so leather buff coats became increasingly popular. Uh, they seem to have originally been produced from European buffalo hide. Um, but by the Civil Wars, most buff coats were produced either from other bovines or indeed from deer leather. We know that a lot of deer parks were raided uh, at the time. Um, and they were pretty effective, um, particularly against bladed weapons, including pikes. Indeed, there were some manufacturers who claimed that their um, buff coats were pike proof. And indeed, there are a number of anecdotes from conflicts not only in England, but also Europe and America, uh, that suggests that they really were pretty effective against um, bladed weapons. And they were even effective against pistol shot, so long as it wasn't at a point-blank range. Musket shot is a bit different. They wouldn't really have had um, offered much protection against musket shot. But for the kinds of weapons your cavalryman is going to be encountering on the battlefield, such as swords and pistols, uh, they were a good form of defence. Oh, that's quite amazing. I didn't realise that the that pistol shot even would be good at resisting those. Yeah, we've actually got some of the uh, buff coats from Littlecote have um, scuff marks on them, which might be uh, the result of um, uh, pistol balls grazing along them. And um, recently <clears throat> we did a collaborative study on the defensive qualities of buff coats, which um, proved that um, they could withstand pistol shot, uh, as I say, as long as it wasn't at um, point blank range. Mm, mm. And obviously with, without that plate armour, it would be much more easier to, to fight as well, wouldn't it, and ride? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, tactics were changing very rapidly at this period. So instead of the sort of tightly bunched formations of cuirassiers that you saw at the beginning of the 17th century, really during the civil wars, these more lightly equipped harquebusiers were coming to the forefront of cavalry tactics. And the way they operated was very different. They were operating over rough terrain, over long distances. They were fighting dismounted as well as mounted. And for that, you just need a... Um, a more flexible and lighter um, defensive equipment. And what is the most impressive buff coat that you've come across during the studies? Um, I would have to say it's probably the one worn by the Swedish king, Gustavus Adolphus, uh, when he was killed at the Battle of Lützen in 1632 during the, um, the Thirty Years' War. It's actually a really plain buff coat. In its design, there's nothing special about it it's not particularly fancy um, but what makes it really poignant is the bullet hole in the back and the traces of the numerous injuries the king sustained before he was uh, actually dispatched by a bullet to the head um, now as you can imagine the coat was eagerly retrieved by the imperialists after the battle where it was sent to the emperor in vienna as a, a great trophy of the defeat of the Lion of the North. Um, and it was only returned to Sweden actually after the First World War in recognition of um, Swedish and Red Cross military aid to the Austrians during the war. But you can't help but stand in silence really when you look at it and you see this uh, pistol ball and you know the history of the man and you know how he was killed. It's um, 
it's actually quite a, a moving thing. Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about the leather gauntlet, which has extra layers of fish scale protection? Yes. Yeah, so um, leather gauntlets are becoming increasingly more common for cavalrymen particularly. Um, you know, they were using firearms. And so wearing a, an armoured gauntlet makes that slightly more difficult, although not impossible. Um, but as I say, the use of armour, plate armour, was um, falling out of popularity, so more leather armour was worn. Now, <clears throat> most leather gauntlets seem to have been private purchases, i.e. they weren't issued um, in bulk to cavalry regiments. So it'd be up to each individual to buy his own, and therefore, if he had the money, he could customise his own. So we have um, actually a couple of um, gauntlets in the Royal Armouries collection, and there's also one on display from us at the National Civil War Centre, which have these overlapping scales. So you have a foundation uh, layer of leather, and then you have these scales um, sewn on top of it. And what it's probably trying to do is um, imitate Eastern European uh, style armour, which was very fashionable uh, during the period. And would that extra um, layers, which give extra protection? Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, one of the most vulnerable parts of the body, if you are a cavalryman, your hands and your arms, you know, your enemy is going to be hacking at those with a sword, what, and so you need that extra protection. I mean, some buff coats actually have um, a double layer over the arms, so this, so double-layered gauntlets like the one with the scales just provide that additional level of protection. And could you just uh, explain about the line of kings, what that is, uh, and the role of the carved um, yellow beer stallion in the collection? Uh, well... The Line of Kings is a display at the Tower of London, um, which in one form or another has been around since the mid-16th century, when we know that there were a display of armours on wooden horses at the Tower. However, it wasn't really until the Restoration that the Line of Kings, as we think of it today, was established. Now, the aim was to celebrate the long continuity of the English monarchy from the Norman Conquest. And, of course, this was particularly important, considering that prior to Charles I, there had been a Republican interregnum, and then prior to that, there had been the downfall and execution of his father, Charles I. Um, and it, at the line of kings actually gained even more importance following the Glorious Revolution of 1688, when um, William was particularly keen to show that there was this unbroken line of English monarchy, even though that's, that wasn't quite true. Um, we know that originally some of the armours and horses came from Greenwich, and Greenwich Palace, and they were subsequently added during the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, many of the armours did not belong to the kings they were supposed to represent. So William the Conqueror, for example, appeared in a late 16th century armour. But that didn't really matter, as the message was about the splendour of the monarchy, not the development of arms and armour. So it wasn't really until the early 19th century that the line, that the line of kings started to be redisplayed more accurately 
which eventually meant the removal of many earlier monarchs whose armors had not survived. Now, in addition to the armors, you, of course, have the horses. And it seems that at least one horse was by the famous woodcarver Brindling Gibbons. Um, and that was commissioned <clears throat> in about 1685, 86, I think, um, whereas the others were by various other uh, late 17th century woodcarvers. So the horses themselves are particularly important. And in the modern re-display, which was undertaken in 2013, uh, the vast majority of the horses were actually displayed separately so that you could better appreciate them. Um, now, you mentioned the yellow stallion. <clears throat> That's a bit of an odd one out, really. Um, undoubtedly, more work needs to be done on these horses. We have looked at their methods of construction. But as far as we know, uh, there isn't anything particularly significant about the yellow bay stallion. Uh, but it's possible that because it stands out more than the others, it does have a history that we just don't know about at the moment. There's another um, set of armour called the Lion Armour, and that seems to be associated with quite a few different commanders. Um, can you tell us about the armour itself? Uh, well, the Lion Armour, which is on display in Leeds, was probably made for Henry II of France in the mid-16th century. Um, quite how it got to England is not entirely clear, but it seems to have been in this country by the second quarter of the 17th century. Um, quite a few individuals have been shown wearing it. So um, the Earl of Manchester, for example, uh, General Monk, King, King Charles, Prince Charles. Um, and I think really the reason for that, it has to do with its decoration. It's covered with menacing lions' faces, so it's clearly emphasising the wearer's prowess. Now, it wasn't uncommon for um, individuals at the time to be painted in armours that had a particular association, but of course what that doesn't necessarily mean is that the lion armour was necessarily worn by these individuals. Um, I'd be very surprised, actually, if it was worn by all of them, considering, you know, the, the armour was tailor-made for Henry himself, and therefore anyone slightly taller or slightly shorter, particularly Charles, um, wouldn't have been able to fit into it. So it's more to do... So when you see depictions of people like Charles wearing the lion armour, it's more to do with this um, um, sort of aggressiveness and martial quality that comes through in the armour. Um, and probably one of its most famous depictions, actually, is on the Royalist Forlorn Hope Medal, which was commissioned in 1643. And that shows the lion armour being worn by both Charles I on one side and the young Charles, Prince of Wales, on the other. And the Forlorn Hope Medal was designed to be issued to men certified by their commander-in-chief as having shown particular bravery um, in the Forlorn Hope. But it is interesting to consider how both sides use that as an iconic image, isn't it? The, the yes, armor. absolutely. And are there any mysteries associated with any of your, your Civil War pieces? I mean, I, I suppose you've touched on some there, really, with the yellow bear stallion, I suppose. But well, one mysteries? that uh, you mentioned earlier with the Cromwell sword, for example. Um, so although that 
by tradition, it's believed to have been used by Cromwell at the Siege of Drogheda in 1649. Um, unfortunately, we can't take that provenance all the way back to 1649. Um, when we acquired the sword in the 19th century, it came with the Cromwell provenance. And it's certainly of the right date and it's of the right quality that it could well have belonged to Cromwell. But what's important to remember is there are at least 10 swords in Britain and the United States that are said to have belonged to Cromwell. Now, he clearly would have owned more than just a couple, but we can't say for certain. Unfortunately, we will probably never be able to say for certain whether Cromwell actually used this one. And it's the same for um, a lot of the weapons and armours in our collection. The gilt armour is another example, the Geoffrey Hudson armour. We have these associations with certain individuals, but actually proving that association is more difficult. Yeah, like looking at the balance of probability, as you see. Exactly. And in terms of exhibitions, so uh, is the Royal Army planning any future exhibitions? Um, not at the moment. There's nothing planned for the civil wars. Mm. Um, but undoubtedly, there will be other museums around the country which will be having Civil War exhibitions. Uh, there's certainly been an increase in the number of Civil War exhibitions over the last few years. And so when invited, the Royal Armouries will certainly be supporting those. Do you have any artefacts in the collection that were used in films? So, for example, Cromwell, the film? Not in Cromwell, but actually we do have uh, a number of our original pieces, particularly Pikeman's armour, were actually used in the 1975 film Win Stanley directed by Kevin Brownlow and Andrew Mollo, which tells the story of the socialist reformer Gerard Winstanley and the diggers uh, who has attempted to establish a socialist agrarian society. Um, again, that was in the days when uh, it was perfectly acceptable to take real items and subject them to all weathers uh, during filming. Um, so we don't have anything from the film Cromwell with Richard Harris, but as part of our Collecting Cultures initiative, which is to collect items of arms and armour so associated with or used in particular films as props or associated with um, uh, certain characters, we have actually purchased film props such as a pistol, which was used in the film Cromwell. And that can be seen in the uh, Make Believe Gallery in Leeds. And we hope in the future to um, build up our collection of uh, props which were used in that film. Excellent. Um, any idea who or which actor actually used that? Uh, <laughs> that's another sort of uh, <laughs> problem that we face, like with a Cromwell sword, really. Um, yeah. We've had some items that have been offered to us in the past <clears throat> where we've been told this was used by so-and-so in the film. Of course, we can't just accept that on face value. We have to do our own research to prove that. And as far as I know, the objects that we have from the film Cromwell weren't used by um, any of the major actors. I see. OK. Um, and you've written a book as well, haven't you, about Civil War arms and armour, which which I've currently waiting for that to be delivered, um, ordered that. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that book? Uh, yeah, so over the last few years, the Armouries has been producing a series of introductory books to various periods of history. So there's one called The Arms and Armour of the Late Medieval Knight. There's another, 
the arms and armour of the First World War. And a few years ago, I was asked to produce one on the civil wars. Um, it took about a year from beginning to end. Um, and I wanted it to appeal to people both who are unfamiliar with the period and want an, an easily understandable introduction to it and the equipment, but also to those people who have some knowledge of the period. You know, maybe they own the Little Cut catalogue, which the Royal Armouries published a number of years ago, or maybe David Blackmore's Arms and Armour of the English Civil War, which came out in about 1990. So, it was to build, it was also designed to build on previous research. Obviously, being in the format that it is, I couldn't say everything or put in everything that I wanted to, but hopefully it provides a good overview on the manufacture of equipment, the types of equipment used, who used it, and the experiences of people actually wearing and using this stuff on the battlefield. Hopefully, I've got the balance right. Uh, time will tell. And in terms of arms and armour, so did one side possess an advantage over the other? Um, it's difficult to say. Certainly on balance, Parliament benefited from naval superiority, which ensured a more stable supply line. And of course, it benefited from the concentration of craftsmen and access to foreign markets, which were well established in London. Um, now, this undoubtedly contributed to Parliament's victory, but it's also important to remember that the Royalists came close to success on a number of occasions, and they did set up their own um, manufacturing centres in their capital of Oxford and in uh, the surrounding countryside. And although many Royalist regiments were very poorly equipped, in a number of cases, they were, over to, they were able to overcome these deficiencies. Um, but nonetheless, really, it was Parliament's sustained war effort with this secure base, which resulted in the creation of a well-equipped, trained, modern fighting force. And of course, that laid the foundation in the following decades for Britain to establish itself as a serious European power. That's been really fascinating, Keith. Thank you uh, for taking us through a little bit more of an insight about the, the Little Court collection and then all of the um, different Civil War artefacts that you've got. Good. My pleasure. Are there any plans to reopen at all um, soon? Or yeah, so a difficult to see. The Royal Armouries, of course, has uh, three sites. So there's Leeds, the Tower of London and Fort Nelson. Uh, Fort Nelson down near Portsmouth, uh, opened quite recently to visitors. Um, the Tower of London, that's obviously working alongside um, <clears throat> HRP, and I can't remember now what the arrangements are. But as for our main museum site in Leeds, we are hoping to be able to open next month, so in September. Um, but of course, we need to make sure that um, the place is as safe as possible for our visitors um, and that they get the best experience of visiting the museum without making any compromises. So that's what we're working to at the moment. Fantastic. I hope you enjoyed that fascinating insight into the Royal Armouries collection. Throughout this week, I've posted polls on Facebook and Twitter to get your ideas and preferences for the next episode of CavalierCast. 
Sir Thomas Fairfax has come out as the subject you'd most like to hear about next. So watch out for the next episode that will look into the general of Parliament's new model army. Why not keep in touch with me on Twitter at 1642author or facebook.com forward slash Mark Turnbull author. Thanks once again for listening.